Have you ever been given a job to do without the instructions to do it? A few years ago, this happened to a young man named Zach Christensen. Uh, Zach was working as an intern for a company known as Franklin Covey. Uh, Franklin Covey is a company that does leadership training for businesses and organizations all around the world. If you've ever heard of or read the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, that book was written by Stephen Covey. He's the Covey part of Franklin Covey. Uh, the Franklin part is Ben Franklin because his time management and organizational principles are a large part of what is taught by that company. So, so anyways, there was this young man, Zach Christensen. He was working as an intern for Franklin Covey. And he says that one day his boss handed him a draft manuscript for a business leadership book that the company wanted to publish. And Zach's boss told him to evaluate the book and to assess its readiness for publication. Now, being an intern, Zach was thrilled that the company valued his opinion this much, and he was excited to do this work, but there was just one problem. Nobody told Zach how to do this job. Uh, nobody gave Zach any instructions on how to assess a book's readiness for publication. Zach had no experience in this. He was a psychology major in college, and he said in his psychology classes, they never taught him how to assess the readiness of a business book for publication. Zach says when he was given this assignment, he felt intimidated and unqualified. And you know, I think a lot of Christians feel like Zach when it comes to pointing people to Jesus. We know that we've been called to point people to Jesus, but we often feel intimidated and unqualified to do that. And we feel that way because, well, nobody's ever given us any instructions on how to do that. Well, thankfully, the Bible can help us out here. Now, you're not going to find a set of instructions in the Bible that says if you want to point people to Jesus, step one, do this, step two, say this, and so on. You don't find that kind of step-by-step -step set of instructions in the Bible. But what you do find in the Bible, especially in the book of Acts, is you find many examples of how the first Christians pointed people to Jesus. And we can learn a lot from their examples. And so when we encounter these passages as we go through the book of Acts, as we encounter these passages where, where somebody is pointing people to Jesus, we're going we're gonna to stop and we're going to take note of what they said and what they did. And we're going to have an opportunity to do that today. As we go through Acts chapter 2 today, we're going to see the Apostle Peter point a whole crowd of people to Jesus. We're going to look at what Peter said and what he did so that we can learn from his example. So why don't you take out your Bibles and open them up to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And as you're turning in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, let me remind you that last week when we looked at the first part of chapter 2, it was the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, 10 days after he ascended into heaven. And God has just sent the Holy Spirit to fill the believers and to empower their witness. There was about 120 believers uh, who were filled with the Spirit that day. And when the Spirit filled these believers, if you remember, he gave each of them at least one spiritual gift that they could use to build up and strengthen the church. And for these believers, if you remember last week, we talked about how the Holy Spirit gave them the ability to speak in foreign languages that they had never studied or learned before. And these believers, they, they went out and they began to use this gift by proclaiming the mighty works of God in the foreign languages that they were given the ability to speak. And there was a lot of people in Jerusalem at this time from all over the place, all different nations. 
And they were amazed that these Galilean believers were, were speaking in languages that, that they had never studied or learned, their own native languages. And so some people asked, well, how is this possible? But other people, well, they mocked the believers and they accused them of being drunk. That's where we left off last week. Now, what happens next, what we're going to look at today is that Peter, he gets up and, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter responds to these accusations that the believers are drunk by pointing the people to Jesus. Peter's response is recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. This is known as Peter's Pentecost sermon, and I'm going to read it for us. It's a long passage, but we really need to look at everything that Peter said in order to see how he took advantage of this opportunity to point the people to Jesus. Now, normally I would have you stand as I read God's word, but uh, since this is a long passage, I'll have mercy on you and I'll let you remain seated today. Okay, but you can follow along. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to start to read at verse 14 and I'll read through verse 41. Okay, here's what God's holy and inspired word says to us. It says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's the only third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my flesh or pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, 
Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to him, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you now for the opportunity to talk about what it means and how it applies to our life. And I pray that your spirit would guide us in this conversation. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we look at Peter's Pentecost sermon today, the main point that I want to make is this. Because God sent the Holy Spirit to empower every Christian's witness, we should take advantage of every opportunity to point people to Jesus. Okay, because God sent the Holy Spirit to empower every Christian's witness, we should take advantage of every opportunity to point people to Jesus. And I think God has arranged for us to look at this particular passage on this particular day for a reason. You see, our fall festival is coming up in just three weeks. Three weeks from today, on October 22nd, hundreds of people from this community are going to come right here, and they're going to come maybe to get some candy. They're going to come to play some games. They're going to come to eat some free food. And we want the people who come here to, to have a good time and to make some good friends. But more than anything, we want all of these people who come here to hear about Jesus Christ. God's going to bring the people to us. Our job is to take advantage of the opportunity and point them to Jesus. Now you may be sitting there saying to yourself, well, how do I do that? How do I point people to Jesus? Maybe you're sitting there and you're already starting to feel intimidated and unqualified and you feel that way because, well, no one's ever given you any instructions on how to point people to Jesus. I hope to provide some help today. As we look at how Peter pointed people to Jesus on the day of Pentecost, I want to outline his approach for you by listing four easy-to-remember instructions. The first one is this. When you want to point people to Jesus, first, build a bridge. Build a bridge. And here's what I mean by that. Let's say you're making small talk with somebody and you want to point that person to Jesus. If you want to do that, if you want to point that person to Jesus, at some point you have to say something that will move the conversation into the realm of spiritual matters. My personal evangelism professor is the, is the one who called this a, a, a building of a bridge. And he called it building a bridge because you say something that will take the conversation into the spiritual realm. And that's what bridges do. They take you from one place to another. For example, you can take the George Clark Memorial Bridge to, to go from Indiana into Kentucky. Or you could take the Wabash Memorial Bridge to go from Indiana into Illinois. That's what bridges do. They take you from one place to another. And so when you want to point people to Jesus in, in the course of the conversation, at some point you've got to build a bridge. You've got to say something that will move the conversation into the realm of spiritual matters. And that's what Peter did when some people in the crowd accused the believers of being drunk on the day of Pentecost. Peter built a bridge in verse 14 through 16. In verse 14, Peter stands up and he, and he asked the crowd to listen to him for just a minute. And then in verse 15, Peter says, okay, come on guys, these people aren't drunk. It's only the third hour of the day. The Jewish day started at 6 a.m., so the third hour of the day would have been 9 o'clock in the morning. So Peter basically says to the crowd, 
All right, you might think these people were drunk, but, but they're not. It's only 9 a.m., and nobody gets drunk at 9 a.m. I mean, they might get drunk later in the day, but nobody's going to get drunk this early in the morning. And now look at verse 16, because this is where Peter builds the bridge. In verse 16, Peter says, these people aren't drunk, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Okay, do you see what Peter did there? In verse 16, Peter said something that moved the conversation into the realm of spiritual matters. Peter moved the conversation from accusations that the believers were drunk to something that's talked about in the Bible. And now Peter continues to build this bridge in verses 17 through 21. And he does this by quoting a pretty long passage from the, from the prophet Joel. I think Peter wants to make three points with this quote from the book of Joel that, that he quotes here. Okay, and I think it's worth noting that Peter could make these three points with a quote from the Old Testament prophet Joel because he was speaking to Jewish people who knew the Old Testament scriptures and believed them. Peter knew his audience, and he spoke to them in terms that they could relate to and understand. And it's important to do that when we're building bridges and pointing people to Jesus. Okay, so what, what points did Peter want to make when he quoted this pretty long passage from the prophet Joel? I think the first point Peter wanted to make is, is that the people are not filled with wine. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. In verses 17 and 18, Peter points, how, points out how God said through the prophet Joel that he would pour out his spirit in the last days. And Peter points out how God said through the prophet Joel that all who receive the spirit will prophesy. In other words, they would proclaim the mighty works of God. That's what it means to prophecy in this context. So Peter says, okay, this is what's going on here, guys. These people aren't drunk. They're filled with God's spirit, and they're proclaiming the mighty works of God. And you shouldn't be surprised at this, because this is exactly what God said would happen in the last days. And now maybe you're sitting there and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I got, I got a question, okay? Uh, this happened 2,000 years ago. How can you say, how could Peter say that something that happened 2,000 years ago happened in the last days? Well, if you're wondering that, let me take a minute and explain what the last days are. In the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, the last days referred to the time when God's anointed one would come and set up God's kingdom on this earth. Now, we know from our standpoint in, in history that Jesus is God's anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. Okay, those are other words that mean anointed one. Jesus is God's anointed one. And we know from what was written in the New Testament that there are two comings of Jesus. Jesus came 2,000 years ago to establish God's kingdom. And he's going to come again in the future to consummate God's kingdom. In other words, he'll come again to make God's kingdom complete. And for the time in between, as we've talked about, Jesus is working through his followers to expand God's kingdom. Now, since the last days refers to the time when the Messiah would come to set up God's kingdom, when you see the last days in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, it could refer to Jesus' first coming, it could refer to his second coming, and or it could refer to the time in between. Okay, because the first coming, the second coming, and all the time in between relates to that time when the Messiah would set up God's kingdom. 
So that's why Peter could say to this crowd 2,000 years ago that God poured out his spirit just as he promised to do in the last days. When Jesus came 2,000 years ago, the last days begun. And since Jesus hasn't returned, we're still in the last days right now. God's kingdom is already here, but it's not yet here in the fullest or most complete sense. Okay, so the first point that I think Peter's trying to make is that the last days have begun. And we know that the last days have begun because God has poured out his spirit just as he said he would. And then the second point that Peter wants to make with this quote is that God's judgment will take place in the last days. In verses 19 and 20, Peter points out how God said through the prophet Joel that in the last days, there would be all sorts of wonders in the sky and and signs on the earth below. There would be blood and fire and smoke on the earth and the sun will go dark in the sky and the moon will look like blood. This part of Joel's prophecy seems to be about things that will happen when Jesus returns the second time. Okay, the Bible often uses this kind of imagery to portray the judgment that God will pour out on sinners in the last days when Jesus returns. You see very similar imagery in the book of Revelation, which talks about that time when Jesus will come and judgment will be poured out on sinners. Now, when the Old Testament prophets spoke about the last days, they often intermixed elements of Jesus' first and second comings with each other. And that's what's going on here in Joel's prophecy. Okay? You see it a lot in the Old Testament prophecies where, where the prophets would say some things about the first coming and the second coming that are kind of intermixed with each other. And that's because from their perspective, they really couldn't see that there were going to be two comings of the Messiah separated by a few thousand years. We can see it pretty clearly in our day. You got the first coming here, the second coming here. So we look one way and we see that Jesus came in the past and we look the other way and we can see that he's coming in the future. But from the Old Testament prophet's perspective, they were looking forward to all of that and the two comings kind of blended into each other from their perspective and they couldn't see that there was a gap in between, at least not very clearly. So a lot of times you get prophecies where elements of the first and the second coming are mixed together. And so that's what's happening here where, where Joel says, okay, the spirit is, is going to be poured out in the last days. That part kind of happened at Jesus' first coming. And then there's going to be judgment on sinners in the last day. And that part's really going to happen more towards the end of the last days. Okay, so Peter's made these two points so far that the last days have begun. And we know that because the spirit has been poured out. And judgment is coming in the last days. And then the third point that Peter wants to make, and and I think this is the most important point that he wants to make. The third point that Peter wants to make is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved from God's judgment. We see that in verse 21. Okay, verse 21 is a key verse in Peter's Pentecost sermon. It's a key verse because, well, pretty much the rest of what he talks about is, 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 is showing the people that Jesus is the one who is the Lord. He's the one that we must call upon to be saved from our sin. So Peter wants these people to know that unless they call upon the name of the Lord to be saved, they will face God's judgment in the future. Okay, so Peter builds a bridge by quoting from the prophet Joel, and he's on a roll. He hasn't mentioned the name of Jesus yet, but he's built this bridge, and he's, he's moved the conversation now into the realm of spiritual matters. Now, what are some ways that you can build a bridge? 
What are some ways that you can move a conversation into the realm of spiritual matters? There's a lot of ways you can do it. Let me just give you a few suggestions. Okay, let's say you meet somebody, maybe at the fall festival, and you strike up a conversation. You're getting to know a little bit about them. You ask them about their family. You ask them where they live. You ask them where they work. Well, you can also ask them if they go to church. That question right there will start to move the conversation into the realm of spiritual matters. You can ask them if they like to read. And if they like to read, you can ask them if they've ever read the Bible. It's a simple question. And it moves the conversation into the realm of spiritual matters. Listen carefully. Be observant. You just might hear something or you just might see something that you can then use to build a bridge and move a conversation into the realm of spiritual matters. I told you about my personal evangelism professor who, who used that phrase, build a bridge. Well, I remember one day in class he was telling a story about uh, a time when he was living in Chicago in an apartment complex, and somebody happened to move into the apartment that was a couple of doors down from his. And so one day he stopped by to introduce himself to his new neighbor. And he knocked on the door, and he started talking to the guy who answered. And it didn't take long for him to realize that this guy that he was talking to was a huge Chicago Bears fan. Okay, that's all the guy wanted to talk about. And my professor says that he could notice that on the wall in the living room behind behind where they were having the conversation, there was a big, giant poster of Mike Singletary. I don't know if you remember Mike Singletary, but he was a middle linebacker for the Chicago Bears in the 1980s. One of the best and one of the toughest to ever play the game. I think he could tackle people with his eyes, all right, <laughs> if you remember Mike Singletary. Now, my professor knew that Mike Singletary is a Christian. And so he asked the guy, he said, I see you're a Mike Singletary fan. Do you know that he's a Christian? Well, there's a bridge right there, okay? And the guy said that uh, he had no idea that Mike Singletary was a Christian. He didn't think football players could be Christians. He told my professor, he said, I thought all Christians were wimps. That's what he said. And so now my, my professor, he was in a position to talk about uh, Jesus and his followers and what those guys endured, what they went through and why they went through it. They certainly weren't wimps. They were some of the toughest people who have ever lived. So if you want to point people to Jesus, start by building a bridge. Make a statement. Ask a question that will move the conversation into the realm of spiritual matters. Then you can't stop there. Okay, after you've built a bridge and moved the conversation into the realm of spiritual matters, then you have to bear the bad news. You have to bear the bad news, and the bad news is that we've all sinned against God and that we're all going to face judgment when Jesus returns, unless somebody saves us from that. Now, Peter's already introduced the idea of God's judgment on sinners when he quoted Joel's prophecy, but he really starts to bear the bad news in verses 22 and 23. Okay, here's what we see in verse 22 and 23. Peter says to the crowd, he says, Men of Israel, you know what God did through Jesus. You saw the miracles that Jesus did. Miracles that should have made it clear to you that Jesus is God's anointed one. Yet you crucified and killed Jesus. Yes, Jesus' crucifixion was a part of God's eternal plan. And, and yes, Jesus actually died at the hands of lawless men, a reference to the Romans who nailed him to the cross. But Peter says you're responsible for the role that you played in that. The point Peter's making is, you guys have sinned against God. 
And the implication is, you'll face his judgment as a result of that. Now, Peter's pretty direct. Peter's pretty direct in bearing the bad news. You can be direct like that. I'm not sure people in our culture today appreciate that, and I'm not sure they're going to respond very well to that approach. So let me suggest an alternate approach when it comes to bearing the bad news. It's not the only way to bear the bad news, but it tends to be an effective way. Okay, let's say you've built a bridge. You've moved the conversation into the realm of spiritual matters. You can then ask the person if they think they'll go to heaven when they die. Most people at least amongst those who believe in a place called heaven, most people will say, yeah, I think I'm going to go to heaven when I die. I think I'm a pretty good person. You know, I think God will let me in. Well, you can ask them if they're familiar with the Ten Commandments. And whether they are or they aren't, you can ask them if they've ever told a lie. I mean, I, I'll admit that I have, and you know, most people will admit that they've told at least one lie at some point in their life. And you can ask them if they've ever taken anything that didn't belong to them. Again, I'll admit to it, and, and most people will admit to the same. You can ask if they've ever been so angry with somebody that they've, they've called them a name, an insulting name. And when people say, well, yeah, I've done that, you say, well, you know, Jesus said that's, that's murder in the heart. You can ask if they've ever used God's name or Jesus' name as a cuss word, or if they ever looked at a person they're not married to with lust, which Jesus said is adultery in the heart. And most people, if they're honest, will say, okay, yeah, I've done these things. I've done these things. Then you can say, well, you know, are you aware that God's standard for heaven is perfection? Perfect obedience? So after just, look, I mean, we only looked at like three or four of the commandments. You know, how, how do you stack up to God's standard? Well, I guess I fall short. Well, bingo, there you go. You've just borne the bad news. I remember a few years ago, I was taking one of my engineering students to, to a conference. And as we were driving to the conference, I started asking him about his interests. And in the course of the conversation, I learned that he didn't go to church, but I did learn that he was interested in spiritual things. And so I used this approach that I just described to bear the bad news to him. And there's a name for this approach. It's called the way of the master, okay, if you're interested in learning more about it. And so after we talked about a few of the Ten Commandments, kind of just like what I described to you, after we talked about God's standard of perfection, he looked at me and he said, well, if that's the case, if God's standard is perfection, then nobody's good enough for heaven. We're all doomed. We're all going to face God's judgment. I said, you're exactly right. I said, in fact, that's exactly what the Bible says. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And death, in that context, refers to an eternal separation from God in a place called hell. That's where we're all heading. I said, do you, do you agree that's bad news? He said, well, yeah, of course I agree that's bad news. I said, well, would you like for me to share with you some good news? He said, well, after hearing that, yeah, tell me some good news. And so I proceeded to give him the good news that Jesus came to save us from our sins and, and its eternal consequences. That's what we've got to do. After we bear the bad news, then we've got to share the good news. Okay, the good news about who Jesus is and what Jesus did to save us. That's what Peter did. After, Pe after Peter gave the bad news, he then gave the good news. And when Peter gave the good news, he made two points about who Jesus is. Okay, the first point that Peter makes is that Jesus is 
the Christ. Peter makes the point that Jesus is God's anointed one. He's the one who came to set up God's kingdom here on this earth. In verse 24, Peter tells the crowd that God raised Jesus from the dead. The Jesus that they crucified and killed, God raised him from the dead. And that proves that Jesus is God's anointed one. It proves that he's the one who came to establish God's kingdom. Peter then quotes from Psalm 16 to prove that Jesus is God's anointed one. Psalm 16 was written by King David about a thousand years before Jesus came. And the key verse in Psalm 16 is the one that we see in Acts 2.27. It's where David says to God, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. Hades refers to the realm of the dead. And corruption would refer to a dead body that was decaying. David is saying that God's Holy One, His Anointed One, will not stay dead and His body will not see decay in the ground. Now in Old Testament times, the King of Israel was sometimes called God's Anointed One, God's Holy One. So some people may have thought that King David was writing about himself. I mean, it kind of reads that way when you read the psalm. But Peter goes on in verse 29 to show that David could not have been writing about himself. In verse 29, Peter says, look guys, King David was not writing about himself. King David died, and his body is in a tomb right here in Jerusalem. We can go and we can take a look at it, and we can see it for ourselves. David has been dead for a thousand years. Surely his body has decayed by now. So if you're thinking that David was writing about himself, he wasn't. He was writing about somebody else. And in verses 30 to 32, Peter explains that David was writing about Jesus. He explains that Jesus is God's Holy One, the Anointed One, the Christ who came to establish God's kingdom. Okay, so the first point that Peter makes when he's sharing the good news there is that Jesus is the Christ. He's the one who came to establish God's kingdom. And then the second point that Peter makes is that Jesus is Lord. And it's Jesus' ascension that approves that. In verse 32, when Peter says that God raised Jesus up, he's talking about Jesus' ascension into heaven there. He's not talking about Jesus' resurrection in verse 32. He just got done talking about that. Now he's talking about Jesus' ascension into heaven. And in verse 33, Peter goes on to say that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he was seated at the right hand of God, and he was given the Holy Spirit to pour out on his followers. Now, the significance of being seated at the right hand of God is that the one who is seated at the right hand of God is the Lord. In verse 34, Peter points out that the one who is seated at the right hand of God is the Lord by quoting from Psalm 110. Okay, this is another psalm that was written by David. In the first verse in that psalm, David says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. It's kind of confusing when you read that. The first Lord there is a reference to God the Father. The second Lord there is a reference to the one who is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Okay, so the Lord the Father said to the one who was sitting at, at his right hand, sit here until I make your enemies a footstool. Now a person in Old Testament times, not only would they refer to the king of Israel as God's anointed one, they would also refer to the king of Israel as Lord. So again, some people may have thought that King David was writing about himself. And some people may have thought that, that David was sitting at God's right hand. 
But just like in Psalm 16, Peter says, no, David cannot be referring to himself here. David cannot be sitting at the right hand of God because David's in the tomb. So who is sitting at the right hand of God? Well, Peter's whole point here is that the one who is sitting at the right hand of God is the one who was raised from the dead and then ascended into heaven. And that's Jesus. Peter's point is that Jesus is the Lord. Okay, so let's connect a couple of dots here. If Joel said that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and if Peter has just shown that Jesus is the Lord, then what's Peter trying to tell these people? He's trying to say that everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved from their sins. Peter summarizes his two points in verse 36. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, this Jesus that you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. In other words, Peter says, The whole point I'm trying to get across to you guys is that Jesus is the one who came to establish God's kingdom on this earth, and everyone who calls on his name will be saved from their sin and from God's judgment, and will be granted entrance into that kingdom. That's the good news. After Peter gave the bad news, then he gave the good news. Has anybody ever come up to you and said, I've got good news and bad news for you. Which one do you want first? Right? Or, or have you ever gone to somebody and said, well, I've got good news and bad news for you. Which one do you want to hear first? Okay, 10 years ago, there was an interesting study that was done and the results were published in a journal called Science News. And in this study, it was some kind of psychology study, uh, certain, people, certain people were put in a position where they had to receive good news and bad news. Other people were put in a position where they had to give somebody good news and bad news. Now, when people were in the position where they had to receive both good and bad news, 78% said they wanted to receive the bad news first. But when people were in the group that had to give good news and bad news, only 40% wanted to give the bad news first. 60% wanted to give the good news first. Now, even if we're inclined to give the good news first, when it comes to pointing people to Jesus, we've got to bear the bad news first. Okay, we've got to bear the bad news first. And we've got to do that because the good news that Jesus came to save sinners, well, that really doesn't sound like good news to somebody who doesn't realize that they're a sinner. So we've got to bear the bad news first so that the good news will truly be good news. Okay, that's what Peter did when he spoke to the crowd at Pentecost. He gave the bad news first and then he gave the good news. And if we want to point people to Jesus, we need to do the same. Okay, we need to bear the bad news first and then give the good news. And then there's one last thing that we must do. We need to call for a commitment. Okay, after bearing the bad news and giving the good news, we need to call for a commitment. After the crowd hears the bad news that they've sinned by crucifying Jesus, and after they hear the good news that Jesus is the one who can save them from their sin because he's both Lord and Christ, the Bible says in verse 37 that the people were cut to the heart. That means they were convicted. They knew that they had sinned 
And they knew that they had to do something about that or else they were going to face God's judgment. So at the end of verse 37, they asked the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And in verse 38, Peter responds by calling for a commitment. Peter tells them, repent and be baptized. To repent means to turn away from our sin. Okay, repentance is, it's more than just feeling sorry about our sin. Repentance is feeling sorry about our sin and making a commitment to turn away from it. It's doing a 180. Instead of running towards sin, you turn away from it. Now, when you turn away from one thing, you have to turn towards another thing. And when you turn from your sin, what you turn to is Jesus Christ. In the Bible, repentance and faith in Jesus always go hand in hand. Sometimes you see them mentioned together. For example, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, when Jesus starts his ministry, he goes out and he proclaims, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In other words, repent and put your faith in me. So sometimes repentance and faith in Jesus are mentioned together like that, but sometimes only one is mentioned. And when you see only one mentioned in the Bible, the other is always implied. So here in Acts chapter 2, when Peter tells the people to repent, what he's really saying is make a commitment to turn away from your sin and at the same time put your faith in Jesus. And putting your faith in Jesus, that means making a commitment to following him as Lord. It means believing that his sacrifice was sufficient to pay the price for your sin, but it also means you make a commitment to follow him as Lord for the rest of your life. Now, the biblical way, the biblical way that a person will express that they've made these commitments, the commitment to turn from their sin and to follow Jesus, the biblical way to show that you have made those commitments is to be baptized. That's why Peter says, repent and be baptized. Okay, baptism is a way to publicly express that you have repented of your sin and that you have decided to follow Jesus as Lord. Now, there's a little word in verse 38 that sometimes causes confusion when it comes to the relationship between baptism and the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so I want to talk about this word for just a minute. It's the word for, F-O-R. Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And at first, if you kind of just read over that, it sounds like Peter's saying that baptism is what will forgive you of your sins. It might sound like Peter's saying, be baptized so that your sins will be forgiven. That's not what Peter's saying. The Greek word that's translated for, it can mean so that. But it can also mean because of. And we know from the teaching in the rest of the New Testament that the proper way to understand the word for there is because of. So Peter's saying, repent and put your faith in Jesus. This is what saves you from your sins. And then be baptized because your sins have been forgiven. Be baptized because this is how you show someone that you have decided to follow Jesus and that your sins are forgiven as a result of putting your faith in him. And Peter then wraps up the call for commitment in verse 38 by telling people that when they make the commitment to follow Jesus, they will receive the Holy Spirit. And in verse 39, he says, that's still true today. So when we repent of our sin and when we put our faith in Jesus, we too receive the Holy Spirit. We talked about that last week. 
In verse 40, Peter continues to urge the people to be saved from their sin. And, and then look at what God did when Peter called for a commitment. In verse 41, Luke tells us that 3,000 people repented of their sin. 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus and got baptized that day. So the church grew from 120 people to 3,120 people. Now God did that. Peter pointed the people to Jesus, but God's the one who gave them faith to believe. And it's important for us to remember that. We can point people to Jesus, but it's God that's got to give them the faith to believe. About a week after we moved into our new house in Danville, I was sitting in my, my office at home, and I heard a knock at the door. It was probably about 9.30 in the morning. I suspected it was a solicitor, and sure enough, it was. I opened up the door, and there was a, a young man there who worked for a pest control company. After a little small talk, he asked me if we had any pests in the house. I told him we didn't. He said, well, that's good, but I've got bad news for you. I said, okay, well, what's the bad news? He said, oh, you see all this new construction that's going on around here? He said, it's, it's stirring up all the pests in the ground. And, and they're losing their home, so, so they're looking for places to come and live. So, so if you don't have pests in your house right now, it's not going to be long before you do. And he says, I got good news for you, too. Do you want to hear the good news? I said, okay, yeah, tell me the good news. He says, my company's services can prevent those pests from coming into your house. Then he pulled out a clipboard and he says, would you want to sign a one-year commitment for our services? I said no. But, you know, as I thought back over the interaction that I had with this pest control guy, it struck me that he was using the same approach that I just described here. He engaged me in a little small talk. And then after engaging me in the conversation, he built a bridge. He asked me if I had any pests in the home. And from there, he, well, he bore the bad news. He said, you know, if you don't have them now, you're going to have them soon. And then he gave me the good news. He said, my company services can prevent that. And he called for a commitment by asking me to sign a contract. 2,000 years ago, Peter used this approach to point people to Jesus. It's an effective approach. We can still use it today. We can build a bridge. We can bear the bad news. We can give the good news, and we can call for a commitment. That's how we can point people to Jesus. Now, can you do that? I think you can. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much this morning. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, the one who is the Lord, the one whose name we can call upon to be saved. We thank you, Lord, that you had mercy on us and that when we had sinned against you, that you didn't cast us off forever but you came to rescue us. Lord, you're not only merciful, you are also just, and we know that there is coming a day when Jesus will return and your judgment will be poured out on those who have sinned against you. But Lord, you've been so gracious in giving us a way to be saved from that, for making a way for us to come and enter into your kingdom to spend eternity with you in heaven. Father, we couldn't save ourselves. We needed you to rescue us, and you did that. And Father, there's a world of people out there 
who are heading for a lost eternity apart from you, separated from you. And they may not even realize it. And Lord, you've given us the task of going out and sharing this message with them. Lord, I pray that you would create opportunities for us to do that. And that your spirit would empower our witness just as the spirit empowered Peter on that day of Pentecost to build a bridge and bear the bad news and share the good news and call for a command. I pray that your spirit would empower us to do the same. Father, I pray that if there are any who have heard this message just this morning and, and have been cut to the heart, maybe the spirit has convicted them that they've never made a commitment to turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that they would do that now and that they would receive the Holy Spirit, experience the new birth and the joy of knowing you. Father, there's no one like you. Everything good that we have, we owe to you. And I pray, Lord God, that you would work in us and through us to bring the hope and the joy of the gospel to this community and to the nations around the world. God, I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now at this time, those of us who have made a commitment